we were here on um we were talking uh, um at least i was trying to get to number three to indicate affirmation that not yet fulfilled old testament prophecy will assuredly be fulfilled in the future so this is the opposite of uh, already and not yet fulfillment and just to give you one example i'd like you to turn to uh second peter chapter two actually chapter three second peter three <clears throat> What I'm trying to do here, by the way, is uh, talk about these categories of usage and, and try to flesh them out with two or three at least uh, or more illustrations of these uses. So as we look at the Second Peter 3 and <clears throat> beginning at um, verse 13, Peter says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So he's clearly looking forward here, and uh, this, uh, most commentators agree, in fact, uh, uh, many Bibles in the margin will have Isaiah 65, 17, and 66, 22, because it says, behold, God says there, behold, I, I, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and uh, this is what uh, Peter's uh, referring to, though by illusion, this is by illusion, um, <clears throat> But that's the, that's the clearest promise in Isaiah, where you get new heavens and earth. Both those phrases are used, new heavens and earth. For example, Isaiah 65, 17 uh, begins by saying, um, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And so also 66, 22. So uh, again, we see unique phraseology. This has to be traced, traced back. For those two passages, Peter is saying, we don't have this yet. We're still looking forward to it. But if you look at this from a biblical theological standpoint, Isaiah 65, 17, and uh, 66, 22 have begun fulfillment uh, from Paul's perspective. If you remember uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation. Uh, uh, Behold, uh, former things have passed away and new things have come. And that's actually referring to these two Isaiah passages, including Isaiah 43, 18 to 19, which is a, uh, a new creation text. So, so in terms of a biblical theological perspective that the New Testament has on Isaiah 65, yeah, it's already not yet. But Peter here is underscoring that the not yet is still a lot to be expected. There is a full new heavens and earth. And by the way, what that means is, whereas 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is looking at our spiritual resurrection, i.e. regeneration, as a beginning fulfillment of Isaiah 65 and 66, um, we will have a consummation of that in a resurrection body in the midst of a whole new uh, creation of the heavens and earth. So he's underscoring the future here, and you do have that at various points in the New Testament. Now, number four, to indicate uh, an analogical or illustrative use of uh, the Old Testament, it should have an A in there for analogical and analogical. Um, now, uh, analogy uh, is to say this is like that. Um, so uh, 
for purposes of illustrating or drawing an analogy, New Testament writer will go back to the Old Testament. And uh, he's not indicating fulfillment. Uh, he's not indicating typology. He's just saying this is like that. And so now there are times, and we'll see this in a few moments, where it's hard to know, is this merely an analogy or is it also a type? Because remember the typology, one of its ingredients is correspondence, i.e. analogy. So uh, sometimes uh, that can be difficult, especially you know when you're preaching or teaching, you may have to make those decisions. Um, <clears throat> so if, if we look at some examples, let's, uh, uh, and I can just mention one in Revelation 2, 14 and 20, uh, the reference to Jezebel in a, chapter 2 and verse 14, he says to the church, um, sorry, it's actually 2, um, 2.20 is what I'm, I'm going to look at, chapter 2, verse 20. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And uh, I don't think that this false teacher uh, just happened to be called Jezebel. Um, maybe, but uh, whether she called herself Jezebel or not, or John or Jesus gave her that name, it is... Uh, uh, a name that, that goes back to the Old Testament. And so we're to understand this false, maybe female teacher probably, as comparable to Jezebel of the Old Testament. What does that mean? Well, remember Jezebel was the daughter of a Canaanite king. She came into Israel, married uh, Ahab, and, um, and, and, and she brought her idolatrous ways with her. And she did her best to really convert a significant, if not the majority of Israel to idol worship. And so um, when we think of Jezebel, at the very least, we can think of someone coming from outside the covenant community into the covenant community and um, uh, influencing those within the covenant community to idolatry. And in fact, that's just explicitly what it says that she does. But what's interesting about this is if you look at chapter 17, if you look at my commentary on Revelation here, uh, I draw out about 10 different ways that Babylon the Great is depicted or colored with allusions to Jezebel. And so um, uh, I don't have time to demonstrate that, but Jezebel uh, is none other than Babylon the Great, the world, coming into the covenant community and influencing the covenant community with the ways of the world, which is various forms of idolatry. Was there a hand? I probably saw it. Yes. Um, do you think as well, you mentioned Revelation 2.20, do you think the sections of Pergamum as well, I think it was in verse 14 where it mentioned Balaam and Baal. Well, I was going to, I actually mentioned that, yeah. but I wanted to look at uh, Jezebel first, but the same thing. Would that fit? Oh, yeah, it's the same, and I have that in my notes, and uh, so that uh, the, the reference there to um, Balaam, but I have a few things against you, and same thing, same, same thing said about Balaam as, as Jezebel. Well, what did Balaam do? Balaam counseled King Balak to uh, eventually, um, and, and we know this later in the Pentateuch after the, after the episode where he's counseling Balak, 
he, he gave advice to the king to have um, uh, the women of his kingdom to seduce uh, the Israelites. And in so doing, he, they seduced the Israelites also into idolatry. And um, so uh, it's the same thing. Here's, here's a, a figure who's coming into the covenant community. Whoever the Balaam group is, there's a lot of debate. Um, they're also called Nicolaitans, or equated with them. Uh, but they're coming into the covenant community and influencing the community toward idolatry, to idol worship. And um, so, uh, and we know that uh, there were trade unions, uh, trade guilds in Asia Minor, and you know, a guild for silversmiths, a guild for the woolen trade, and so on. And um, you were expected at least once a year to go to the temple of the god or goddess who uh, was the protector of that trade and uh, eat a meal in uh, praise and thankfulness to that particular god or goddess. If you didn't do that, you'd be ostracized from your trade. Well, I think that's part of the background here because um, uh, if you go into the, uh, the, those temples, you're actually fornicating with the god. Um, I don't think literal fornication is in mind here, though it may be in the background, but throughout the book of Revelation, pornuo and pornea is metaphorical, for example. And later in Revelation, it talks about the kings of the earth who fornicated with Babylon the Great. So it's talking about their uh, uh, intimate, illicit, spiritual intercourse with the world at that point. So, um, so what we have is that someone like Jezebel is saying, look, you can, you can go to those uh, trade union activities, uh, uh, you know, and you can eat uh, foods, um, sacrificed to idols, and um, you, can, you can interact with them. And maybe one of the rationales for that, I mean, how can you justify that? Well, one of the rationales is probably given later in the text where it says, if you notice verse 24, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. So she may have been encouraging them, and we're trying to put two and two together here. She may have been encouraging them. Look, uh, the better you know Satan and the way he deals with things and the way he operates, the better you'll be able to protect yourself. Because behind idols are demons, we know, 1 Corinthians 10, etc. And so um, uh, that may have been one rationale. Another rationale was that Judaism had made a deal with the Roman Empire that they wouldn't worship the emperor, but they would pray for the emperor. And it may be, she would say, look, just go to these trade union festivities and, uh, and, and pray uh, that the trade will be prospered. Um, but in fact, you would be seen as participating in the meeting. And it would have totally deluded your witness if out you know, during, during the week, you're witnessing to Jesus saying he's the only way. And it's, oh, really? Why are you participating in trade union activity? So, yes. Would this be also be talking about religious syncretry? syncretism? Yes, yeah. in mm -hmm. the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Like God raised the prophets to. Yeah, that's, I mean, religious syncretism is, is not just Yahweh, but Yahweh plus, yes. plus uh, Baal. And so here, um, I think the idea is that these Christians think, well, I can maintain my faith in Christ and still participate in trade union activities. Um, and you can find material on the existence of these trade unions and um, um, 
Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, but it's it's in German, but there are English articles in that book. Um, so, uh, so that's one example of uh, the illustrative use of the Old Testament. Let me give you another one. I've already mentioned Babylon, but uh, look at chapter 18. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. And uh, if anybody has their English text open, I'd like somebody to read chapter 18 and verses 1 through 5, where we're going to find, again, a comparison of Babylon uh, to the present situation. Who, who could read? Yes, could you read that for us? After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Thank you. Um, here you've got Babylon clearly in view in chapter 2. I mean, sorry, verse 2. And um, verse 3 says the kings of the earth have, have, have had illicit intercourse with her, um, which means in, to one degree or another that they've been involved with idolatry. Babylon, by the way, is the uh, economic, religious, and uh, cultural uh, side of the world. Uh, uh, the kings are separate, they're the state. Okay? So the state is illicitly in some way in, in collusion uh, with the idolatrous world. And um, of course, we know in the Roman Empire, which would have been included here at this time uh, in the latter part of the first century, um, uh, Caesar himself considered himself a god. And so the whole religious cult of Rome was itself idolatrous. So notice verse four, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that you may not participate in her sins, that you may not receive of her plagues. So they're to come out of Babylon. Um, so Babylon, what is Babylon here? Well, you got to compare it to old Babylon. It was the place of the captivity of God's people and the place of their exile. And so what is Babylon here? It is the world, uh, especially the cultural, religious, economic uh, side, social side of the world. But they're in exile in that world. And, um, and of course, they're participating in exile under the state as well, because the state's in collusion with uh, Babylon. But uh, so, and, and, and by the way, it, it, we, it would be interesting to think about this as typology, because certainly we're going from uh, uh, a localized Babylon to the whole world is Babylon. So you do have escalation here. But uh, at this point, I've concluded it is still analogy. But um, it's not only the place of exile, but it's the place of temptation for idolatry. 
because uh, if you remember Daniel and his friends, they were tempted to um, worship the idols, eat the food dedicated to the king that was offered to idols. And so it was a place where you were tempted uh, to sin and especially to worship idols. And so um, uh, the, the angel is saying, come out of her, my people. Don't participate in her sins. Uh, otherwise, you'll participate in her uh, judgment, which is given in verse six, pay back, pay her back even as she has been paid. And the whole rest of the chapter is about the destruction of Babylon. Um, it's very interesting here uh, that this phrase, come out, uh, is, is a phrase that's used throughout scripture. You could even do a kind of biblical theology of coming out. Um, first of all, Abraham is to come out uh, of Ur of the Chaldees in um, uh, chapter 12. Israel is to come out of Egypt. And, uh, but even before that, you have Lot, where he's commanded by the angels, come out. And then uh, after Israel's commanded to come out, then you have, uh, uh, again, Isaiah 52 saying in the future, uh, actually saying to Israel in the present, they're in Babylon, says, come out of her. Well, actually, come out, come out, um, which is actually also quoted in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, um, where you get the uh, command from uh, Isaiah chapter 52. Um, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. So, so in the future Exodus, they're going to be, they're commanded to come out. And, um, and then, then we have it here. We have the culmination here of God's people coming out uh, of captivity. It's always some sort of captivity that's related to idolatry that people are to come out of. And so that, that, that finds its climax here. And uh, likewise, you know, I mentioned Daniel. If you turn to chapter two, and um, I believe it's verse 10. We have another comparison, another analogy again. So the point of these analogies, what, what, what gives them force is go to the Old Testament context. And uh, <laughs> with regard to Babylon, it's a place of exile. It's a place where people are tempted to idolatry. And there, there's where you get your, uh, your applications, really, for your teaching and your preaching. Uh, how so with that? Well, first of all, I have to confess to you, um, as my wife and I look at uh, political, the political situation in the United States, um, we begin to get uh, just very discouraged. And then we have to stop. We have to say, wait a minute, we're in exile. We're pilgrims passing through. Let's not hold on too tightly to any political ideology that we may have that's in contrast to the prevailing ideology. And uh, that's very helpful. And I think we need to remind our people of that because all of us to one degree are caught up in some ideology or, or some idolatry. Remember that idolatry, we never throw off idolatry until uh, we're finally fully sanctified at death or the final coming of Jesus. Part of sanctification is continually uh, separating ourselves from Babylon the Great, yeah. It was just one of the, Daniel's role in Babylon was not to come out so much of Babylon, but to be distinctive within it. 
Well, now we're talking about something different. Okay, now we're going to look at Daniel in Babylon. Yeah. Whereas in chapter 18, it's come out. Okay. Now with Daniel, um, uh, it's it's something different. So if you look at chapter two, and verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death. I'll give you the crown of life. Now, if you put in your computer search system, you can do this in a hard copy concordance. It's a lot easier with a, a accordance uh, or some computer concordance in the Greek Old Testament, Septuagint. If you put in the verb pyrazo, which means uh, test, uh, together with 10 days, it's only one place it occurs. Daniel chapter one and um, uh, uh, verses, I believe it's verses um, 10 and uh, actually verses uh, 12 and 14, Daniel 1, 12 and 14, where uh, Daniel is, is to be tested for 10 days because he says, uh, I don't want to eat the food, which is dedicated to idols. Um, I don't want to eat that food because it'll be, I'll be compromising my faith. And so during that time uh, in, in, in which uh, the uh, commander over him in prison or wherever he is, not in prison, uh, but watching over him, uh, he, he says, okay, um, you're going to be tested for 10 days to see if uh, God's going to withhold you from this idolatry. So the idea is that in, in, in Revelation, if you carry the uh, comparison over, there, there's going to be a testing for 10 days. And uh, part of this testing will be that they're going to be thrown into prison. And what does that mean? They're, go they're, they're going to be tested to see if they're going to bow to idolatry. And so far they haven't, because look at verse 9. I know your tribulation. There's the word tribulation used again. And your poverty, but you're rich. In other words, you haven't bowed down uh, to uh, the riches of the world, um, but you're spiritually rich. So, um, so, so this is a period of testing in, in which they're tested to, to see if uh, uh, they can endure and not be involved in idolatry. But by the way, here's another case where how do we know it's an illusion? The only place you can find Pirazzo for 10 days is those two verses in Daniel chapter 1. Um, now, the last illustration I want to give, I want to elaborate a little bit more. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians chapter nine. I want to see when we're supposed to end here. Is it 12? When do we end? 12, 12, 10. Thank you. Um, by the way, as I'm thinking of it, since we're going to, to a, a new uh, section here that I'm going to elaborate on, I just did want to mention that um, if, if you don't have uh, the commentary by Carson uh, and me that we edited, on New Testament use of the old, um, uh, I found that a lot of pastors found it very helpful as you're commenting on whatever part of the New Testament, open it up, and uh, a lot of pastors 
I've been very encouraged to have uh, been helped by it. Now, I also have a handbook on the New Testament use of the old, uh, which uh, talks about how to interpret the use of the old, what is an illusion, how do you determine an illusion. Uh, I have more discussion on the different ways the New Testament uses the old, and um, uh, I have a discussion on uh, last chapters, just a case study where I walk through uh, a, a, how you study one passage uh, using the method that I propose in, in that. So, um, okay. Now, the last text in 1 Corinthians 9, I think it is another example of analogy. Uh, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 9, for it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Uh, now, the word there that's used for not is in Greek pronounced may, and it expects a negative answer. So let me paraphrase. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? No. But then verse 10 softens it a little bit. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? So, so far, it, it does sound like Paul doesn't believe that passage is talking about oxen at all, but only about uh, the apostles and, and how they deserve uh, uh, the labor is worthy of, uh, of his wage. And he's, so he says, uh, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because of plowman off the plow and hope, and thresher to thresh, and hope of sharing the crops. Now, um, uh, Paul sees that the statement from the Old Testament, while uh, a literal one in its original context, had primary reference to the moral principle behind it, justice and equity. Um, but some com commentators see that uh, Paul did not at all think chapter 25 and verse 4 was about oxen. In fact, um, S. Lewis Johnson, who's published a little book called The Old Testament and the New by Zondervan, I think, I don't know if that's still in print, that's a really good little book. He's the guy I first learned, uh, uh, I first took a class on the use of the Old Testament and the New. Um, in his book, he has a discussion of this passage. And, um, and he quotes uh, James Moffat, who comments deprecatingly, for Paul, the literal sense of the injunction had no significance at all for Paul. That is about oxen. It's one drawback of a mystical or allegorical interpretation that in extracting what is supposed to be the higher meaning of a text or incident, they often miss the profound and direct significance of the literal statement. So Moffat is saying the statement did have to do with oxen. Paul doesn't even think about that. He should have. What did it mean for oxen? Well, he just goes directly. He, he kind of allegorizes it and says, no, this text was directly. What it meant when Moses wrote it is that we apostles are worthy uh, Labor is worthy of, of uh, the labor. So, um, and, and then C.K. Barrett, um, who was one of the front-ranking New Testament uh, interpreters of the latter part of the 20th century. I believe he taught at Durham, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, here's what he says about the passage. Attempts to show that Paul did not mean that God did not care about the animals break down on the next 
clause? Or is he not speaking uh, simply on our account? He says, he goes on, the only interpretation that is not forced is that in the Old Testament law, God had in mind not oxen, but Christian preachers and their needs. So he's saying, if you look at what Paul's saying, Paul's saying this has nothing to do with oxen, never had to do with oxen. It, it's directly about us. Moses was thinking about us apostles. He goes on, this does not mean that Paul would have denied the truth that God is concerned even over the fall of the sparrow, but, uh, but it was a quite different truth that he found in the Old Testament at this point. At this point, it has nothing to do with animals, but apostles. His argument is not from the lesser to the greater here in terms of an analogy, to which there have been parallels. In other words, God cares for oxen, uh, oxen, therefore so much more for men. No, Paul is not saying that. This text is only about apostles. Now, if Moffat and Barrett are correct, then uh, here's a case where Paul uh, misinterprets the Old Testament according to these, uh, according to these writers. And um, now, uh, Dr. Johnson, uh, from whom I've been quoting here, was at the University of Edinburgh on a sabbatical. And he was sitting in on the class and the professor in the class made the point that the patristic authors continued and systematized the, this allegory, this allegorization that they found in the Bible. And um, uh, two things happened uh, to the uh, apostolic writers. Their minds, number one, were blown by the resurrection. And because of that, they looked back uh, to the Old Testament through only the lens of the pre-resurrected Christ and read Christ in where you shouldn't. And secondly, they were forced to look again um, uh, at the Old Testament. Um, so uh, they interpreted the resurrection by the Old Testament, then they interpreted the Old Testament by the New. And uh, this professor continues, it was not, not long before the fathers saw much in the first words of Genesis, more than they should have. Then the professor added, this is Johnson, the professor said, you'll get fed up with the way the fathers treat the, treat the Old Testament. And you'll get, up, you'll get fed up with the way Paul treats the Old Testament. Take the incident of 1 Corinthians 9. Paul talks there about the oxen and other things and how this passage was only about him. That was rather naughty of Paul in quotation. And Johnson concludes that paragraph with, well, we'll see who was not naughty, Paul or the professor. And um, so... Um, in this passage, uh, actually, uh, in rabbinic literature, Deut Deuteronomy 25.4, which is quoted here, was often used as a, uh, a norm for the elucidation of other texts. It, it was freely applied in an analogical sense, uh, though no rabbi suggests that the literal meaning could be ignored. So they always used it from the lesser to the greater in some way, the rabbis. Uh, okay, look how oxen are treated. So here's how we should treat our fellow man, okay, in, in various contexts. Um, now, it's very interesting that if you read Deuteronomy 25, there is not one statement about an animal except in verse 4. Everything else is about uh, judicial relations between humans. 
And so some commentators have concluded in the light of the context, maybe this had already become a proverb and that this was already a proverb talking about human relations. So in that case, Paul is basically would be using it rightly uh, in that this is just saying that the, the laborer is worthy of the wage. That, that would be just. So that's a very possible uh, interpretation, um, especially in light of the context, because it sticks out like a sore, a sore thumb. 25.4 does because of the mention of oxen. Now, here's where learning Greek, I think, is very helpful, because both Moffat and especially um, Barrett focus in verse 10 on this word, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? The word for altogether is pentos, pentos. And uh, most translations have altogether. I'm curious if you have your English texts open. Uh, what, what do your, is there in, in any text that reads differently from altogether in verse 10? Entirely, thank you. That would be a synonym. Is he speaking entirely for our sake? Is he speaking altogether for our sake? Any, any others? What translation is that? It's the ESV. The ESV. Okay. Um, so, so we've got entirely, we've got altogether, uh, and, and then we have certainly. If you if you look the word up in uh, what we call BDAG, uh, lexicon for New Testament Greek, it can mean altogether. It can mean entirely, but it can also mean certainly, or doubtless, or even at least. Now, if it means certainly, doubtless, or at least, then what Paul is saying is, at least this text is uh, uh, speaking for our sake, or, or assuredly it is but not entirely or altogether. So you can see that range of meaning is really important here, depending on what you take. If it's entirely or altogether, then Paul is saying, that text had nothing to do with oxen, only us. Um, and I think that's surely. Same thing as certainly. So that's, that's, that's good too. So, so that modifies you know, uh, the second part of verse nine, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? No, but it's a soft no in the light of verse 10, or is he speaking assuredly for our sake, or certainly for our sake? Now, if you took entirely or altogether, Paul still may not be wrong, because if this is a proverb, then uh, yeah, it's a proverb that immediately is analogically relevant to us. Um, so, and, and that's very vital that it's a proverb. So there are two different ways to go here that you could see as Paul legitimately understanding this as an analogy. Uh, one would go from the lesser to the greater if God deals with liberal oxen that way, so it's appropriate that he deals with humans that way. Um, and the other is just making just a straight analogy that uh, we're comparing this proverb to us in our situation. Um, so, so very interesting. Um, In fact, I would say what Paul says here doesn't even make sense if, if oxen are not in mind, unless you take it as a proverb. Um, 
Now, I'd like you to turn just to the next chapter. Chapter 10, verse 7 is another illustration here uh, of, a, of an analogy. 1 Corinthians 10, 7. Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Um, so there you get a reference in verse 7 to Exodus 32.4, right before, well, during describing the golden calf incident, an example of idolatry. Um, and uh, so at least what's going on here is there's a problem of idolatry in Corinth. And Paul is basically saying, don't be like the idolaters in the wilderness. Um, and actually, if you notice verse 7, it says, now these things happened, i.e. in the wilderness, as tupoi. There the word type is actually used, but plural. They happened as tupoi for us, that we should not crave evil things as they craved. And then also verse 11, now these things happened to them. This is all in the wilderness, idolatry. Now, these things happen to them typically, typically, translations often have as an example, but it's, they happen typically, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, now this may merely be an analogy, but here's a case where you have two uses of type in the context, and um, th th this is, uh, it's, it's very possible that Paul and this may be a case. Remember, I said it may be a hard time uh, distinguishing between analogy and typology. This may be typology. But if it is, how is it typology? Because typology is saying that, okay, uh, here you have the idolaters in the wilderness. Is that a foreshadowing of the Corinthians who are involved in idolatry? Um, that sounds a little strange, maybe, but it, it may be a foreshadowing of the sin of the Corinthians. If it's only analogy, then it would be more of a warning. Don't be like the Corinthians. Or it could be those of you in idolatry are like the Israelites in the wilderness, one or the other. Um, now, if it's typology, it still could have a warning element because it would say this, this incident of Israel's idolatry in the wilderness is foreshadowing some of you who are involved in idolatry and some of you will remain in it, but I'm exhorting you to come out. could be that. So that, that's a good illustration where it's, it's, hard, uh, it's hard to see. But we're going to look at some other texts, even today probably where sin in the Old Testament foreshadows um, something in the New Testament. And that, that's going to be uh, uh, an interesting, but that's going to be under another use. So I just got the TV right still to itself. <laughs> All right. Uh, next use is um, to indicate the symbolic use of the Old Testament. What's the difference here? There's an overlap between um, analogy and symbolic use. Now, now symbol, has, symbol has many different definitions. Some would say what we've been saying with Jezebel, with Babylon, um, 
with Daniel, that they're symbols. And you can make sense of that, uh, of those symbols. Uh, when I refer to the symbolic use of the Old Testament, I'm referring more specifically to things that were already symbolic in the Old Testament, and those symbols are carried over and used in the New Testament. You had a question. Well, certainly a symbol in the Old Testament. So I think that uh, actually when it's carried over, you know, just as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised up. Uh, I think that's a good example of what I'm talking about here. I think it's, it's already a symbol in the old, and it's carried over as a symbol in the new. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and there, I mean, we could, we could talk about that. What's going on? What's the nature of that comparison? Well, if you looked at the... Um, uh, the, the bronze serpent, you would, you would be healed. And I think that's what's carried over. You look at Jesus in much greater way, you will be healed. Uh, but it's by means of a punishment uh, that you're healed. In other words, they, they're looking at the very thing that was uh, punishing them. And so also the cross, it's the very thing that uh, is punishment, but as they look to it, believers are healed. Um, I think that's the comparison and it could be a type but again that, that's another one where this is hard to know sometimes um, so as we look at the symbolic use of the Old Testament let me just see when we're supposed to stop again it's, it's 12 10 to we could be flexible okay we could take whatever okay we'll we'll go on until three that's all right um, I think I can do this in uh few minutes. I want you to turn with me to Revelation 13 to uh, discuss a good example. And actually, we already discussed an example of symbolic use of the Old Testament with the bronze serpent. It was already symbolic, and it's carried over as a, a bronze serpent uh, as a symbol in the Old Testament applied to Jesus. Here in Revelation 13, uh, I'd like somebody to read verses 1 to, uh, let's see, 1 to 2. Chapter 13, 1 to 2. Would you read for us? Yes. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Mm -hmm. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Yes. Um, you'll know if you have, how many of you have margins in your Bibles? I'm just curious. Um, you, you, you should have, uh, ideally, four or five Bibles that are full Bibles with margins because the margins can supplement one another. Um, but the margins, if you have margins, uh, verses 1 and 2 ought to be filled with Daniel 7. Because Daniel 7 provides the wording for verses 1 and 2. Uh, this is the wording for the beast. In Daniel 7, uh, you, you, you see beasts that 
One is like a leopard, another is like a bear, another is like a lion. And then if you go back to verse one, the seven heads describe the fourth beast. So you have all four beasts described here. And they're clearly symbols there. And so in the context, you ask yourself before you try to interpret this text, so what does it mean in Daniel? And basically it means two things. First of all, these are symbols for state powers. So that's number one. You can identify those symbols as state powers. Number two, they're persecuting state powers. And so when we come to our text, we can at least say two things. Uh, this beast is a persecuting state power, whatever else it is. Now, we could ask the question, why are the four beasts, why are the four state powers from Daniel 7 as symbols combined into one uh, individual here or one figure that is a state power? Why four into one? That, that's a, a tough question to ask. My own uh, answer to it is twofold. Number one, it may be just to emphasize the ferocity of, of the persecution, putting four into one, or, or it may be and, uh, these nations span hundreds of years. So putting the four uh, temporally long reigns of those kingdoms into one may convey the notion of a transcendent power. One is, is not just evident in one age, but spans the ages. So that um, this may be something not just that occurs at the very end of time, but has spanned the whole age from the Roman time to the, the consummation. Um, so those are the kind of things uh, that, that, that you can uh, involve yourself in or you get involved in when you're dealing with the symbolic use of the Old Testament. Um, so uh, that's what I mean by symbolic use, but both with the, uh, uh, that is symbols are carried over as symbols. Again, there is a sense in which you could call, you know, Jezebel a symbol, Babylon a symbol. You could do that too. Uh, I'm being more uh, specifically formal. Um, so the symbolic pictures or the analogies with the an analogical use of the Old Testament always denote principles of continuity from the Old Testament to the new. A word or phrase from the Old Testament comes to stand for or be applied to something in the new. And the, uh, you go to the Old Testament context to see what carries over. It may be two or three or four ideas. It may only be one. Um, now, we're uh, needing to stop. So uh, when we come back, we will look at number six, uh, use of the Old Testament to indicate an abiding authority carried over from the Old Testament, and we'll see what that is about.